if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, Corey, we've been sitting here on a cold January afternoon and uh, talking about Pope Benedict XVI all afternoon and mm -hmm. his legacy which has been really fun. Yes. Uh, most people probably wouldn't think it was fun, but they would be wrong. Because <laughs> Hopefully this... they're enjoying listening to it, even if they wouldn't enjoy doing <laughs> That's it. That's right. So this is going to be the third episode that we cut from this conversation. And we started by talking about Pope Benedict's contributions to the understanding of and the relationship between faith and reason. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about the dictatorship of relativism and right. we had a pretty spirited conversation about that. <laughs> yes, that one was a little spicy. And then now we get to, uh, we're going to sort of land by talking about his understanding of scripture, mm -hmm. the Bible and his scholarship. Uh, he was one of the most reputable, accomplished biblical scholars of the 20th century. And we can talk about how and what he accomplished in that area. But his biblical scholarship, you know, really contributes a lot to, I think, can and should contribute a lot to our understanding of how we utilize the Bible hmm. going into the 21st century. So Absolutely. why don't you start off by just sort of outlining his career as a scholar. Yeah, absolutely. So um, he uh, became, I, I forget the exact year, but he was ordained a priest, I believe in the early 50s after the war. And he, he immediately embarked on a, an academic priestly career. So he was uh, teaching and doing scholarship in, in German universities. And uh, when the Second Vatican Council uh, was convened in the early 60s, he was a theological advisor to his bishop. And so it advised the, the bishop at the, at the council and contributed to documents at the council. Was actually fairly um, influential there, e even though he was a, a young priest and young scholar at the time. Um, and the council produced Dei Verbum, a, a document on divine revelation in the scriptures, among other things. And then he continued to, to teach um, in, the, in the aftermath of the council in German universities. And then when uh, St. John Paul II was elected as pope, they, they already knew each other and, and had a relationship. And, and John Paul sort of called him up to Rome almost against his will. He didn't really want to do it. Um, to become the the prefect for the the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, which is a, a fancy way of saying that the Vatican's office that is is essentially trying to uh, d defend the deposit of the faith, make sure that the faith is being taught faithfully, which I guess is uh, redundant. But and so he was in in that role from the early '80s, I believe, until he was elected Pope in 2005. So through most of the the John Paul pontificate, and so it was it fell to him the inenviable position of uh, uh, choosing whether to censure theologians and, and professors if their teachings were straying from, from orthodoxy. Um, uh, his office would produce documents with theological opinions. And, and all of that was, of course, very much tied up um, with the scripture and the way that the scriptures were being read and interpreted. And, and that was in many ways his specialty. He was, he was a, as you say, one of the preeminent scripture scholars of his day. And so he 
he was um, foremost um, in, in Catholic circles in that regard. Not to interrupt, but, you know, one of the things we, we have in this whole conversation avoided talking about sort of the inside baseball or politics, papal politics sure, and sure. politics of the church because it's a human organization and their sides and factions mm. and personalities and all these things. But in that role that you're saying when he was the head of the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, where he would have to call balls and strikes mm. on Catholic theologians or whatever around the world, uh, he made some enemies yes. Um, yes. because he did call balls and strikes. And so he would say, hey, this Catholic professor or this priest or this bishop who's teaching this, that's, uh, you know, that's a, it's that's, out of line. That's out of yeah. line. And, you know, people have long memories that, you know, there were a lot of um, progressive theologians uh, and progressive priests and bishops who didn't like Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, Car Bishop Cardinal Ratzinger, sort of, you know, <laughs> what, you know, calling him out of line. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and in a lot of ways, he was seen as John Paul II's um, enforcer. Yeah, yeah. You know, enforcer on doctrinal matters. So when he was elected Pope, there were a lot of ruffled feathers about that because the guy who was kind of the enforcer of mm -hmm. orthodox historical, you know, doctrinal matters for those people who were wanting to see the church move in a less doctrinal or uh, progressive doctrinal direction, R Ratzinger becoming Benedict XVI was not a welcome thing. Right. And it's, it's all very ironic because I mean, by personality and I, I think even by, um, if you actually look at his, his actions and his writings, he's, he's really kind of a, a gentle sort of guy. He, oh, he yeah. was, he was not, um, some kind of rabid fundamentalist or, or conservative, um, you know, it, pundit. You know, that's the crazy thing about Benedict the 16th is that all of this stuff about, you know, uh, he was called what, right? Like, um, one of the uncharitable things he was called, I think was, you know, John Paul II's bulldog or you uh, know, God's Rottweiler. God's yeah, Rottweiler. Panzer Cardinal. Yeah, Panzer yeah. Cardinal and all these things, which is, it, it, it is I mean, all you had to do is read anything he wrote and it is so pastoral and it's so gentle and it's so this. What he was was a very fine mind. He had an incredible intellect and he was incredibly faithful to, you know, to the church and he was thoroughly devout. Mm -hmm. And so you had this, this gentle man, but he did call balls and strikes, you know, like an umpire because he would, he had the intellect, mm -hmm. an un, unsurpassed intellect. He was as, as smart as anybody in the church for the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. And he was incredibly devout and faithful. And so when he saw something that was out of line, he said it, but all of his writings and all of his, you know, encyclicals, anything that he wrote, anything he did. In fact, maybe this is the time to mention it. Uh, I was going to hold it to the end, but you know, do you want to talk about his last words? So the nurse who was with mm. him when he passed shared his last words. Yeah, and they were simply, "I love you, Jesus." Yeah, he was. He was a. He was a sincere Christian man and very gentle, but incredibly brilliant mm. and incredibly faithful. And so, you know, he he, he couldn't call, say that two plus two equaled five if it didn't. Well, and, and the thing is that um, whenever you're in a in a disciplinary role or, or a fatherly role, as as a bishop is called to be, and as he certainly was in in his Vatican position, you run the risk of being uh, sort of. Uh, characterized as unreasonable and unwilling to listen. But the thing about Ratzinger and, and, and Benedict when he became Pope is that he was 
extremely well-versed in theology and, and not just scripture and patristics, but modern theology. Like he knew what he was talking about. He was able to dialogue with, with modern theologians and he, he didn't, he wasn't dismissive. He was always able to say, you know, this is what you're saying that's right or that I can at least dialogue with. And these are the parts that are contrary to the faith. Um, he was, he was very reasonable and, and he listened. And I think to draw it back to, to scripture, which is what we were going to talk about, the, the scripture is absolutely central to the life of the church and always has been and always will be. And so a lot of these controversies were, were tied up with how we interpret the scriptures and, and what conclusions we draw from it. And so his biblical hermeneutic, which is simply the, the technical way of saying how the lens through which he viewed the scriptures, how he interpreted it, was first of all completely in continuity with the, with the longstanding tradition of the church and also came out of that formative experience that he had at the Second Vatican Council and the, and the document that was created there. And, and that was really, I think, the, the driving force behind his enforcement, if you want to use that word, of orthodoxy in the church is being faithful to scripture. And we can talk about what that looks like, how, how you be faithful to scripture. Let me just take a moment and unpack a little more uh, that word hermeneutic yeah. or hermeneutics, yeah. because it's not a, an ordinary word. It's right. a very technical term within theology or, mm-hmm. or actually literary studies or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. Any text really that you're text looking at. Text-related thing. And, and so, but what it means, as you said, it's the lens that you look at. It. I remember when I was in seminary and we were being taught hermeneutics, mm-hmm. the, the analogy that was often used back to my thing about being a baseball umpire, it was like the rules of the game, mm-hmm. right? So if you're going to play baseball, there's a rule book, right? For what constitutes a... Uh, a foul ball or what constitutes a, you know, a ball or a strike or a foul ball or a in play ball, or, you know, there's all these rule books. If you're playing football, you're going to say, well, if the, the receiver gets the foot in bounds or not in bounds, and if the ball breaks the plane and right, there's a whole set of rules. And then right. you interpret the game, you know, playing golf, whatever you're interpreting what happens on the field or, and applying those rules to it. And that governs how, what you say yes or no to. Right? right. And if you, if you questioned the rules or started changing the rules, it would become a different game. Right. It becomes inconsistent. So your hermeneutic is the sort of set of rules by which you are going to study the scriptures. You're going to study the text and how you're going to interpret them according to that set of rules. So, you know, this, this becomes so important because he develops a couple of hermeneutical principles, and he's not the only one. I mean, guys, no, I, I say that he develops them as, as crazy. I think he articulated them. It's it's really the tradition of the church that he's right. articulating. I, I think all, but his hermeneutics were basically, and I think actually the, the the way to look at this is almost in the negative. I think it's shocking. I think the average person assumes these are the hermeneutics. These are the rules mm-hmm. of the game. They're sort of the common sense of of Christianity. The common sense of Christianity from from day one, um, from the time of the apostles, from the time of the gospels onward, but they were given names only in contrast to the fact that in the 20th century, the hermeneutics went utterly wacky mm-hmm. and you could basically make up any rules to make the Bible say whatever you wanted it to say, mm-hmm. right? We could go to, on a rabbit hole on that. But the two things that he talked about were the hermeneutic of faith mm-hmm. and the hermeneutic of continuity. So let me, let me just talk about what those are for real quick. Hermeneutic of faith says, if you're reading the Bible, or you're reading a particular book in the Bible, you're reading one of the Gospels, one of the Epistles, whatever. 
that you have to read it as a faith document. Mm -hmm. In other words, when Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, he was writing it as a believer. Mm -hmm. And he was expressing when John writes his gospel, John is saying, I am testifying and witnessing to my experience of the Christ. And And even more fundamentally, it's the Holy Spirit inspiring them. Like God is the fundamental author of the scriptures. Correct. So when you read it, you read it with the understanding that this author, that through the Holy Spirit, this text is making a testimony of faith and you respect it in that way. You don't try to disconnect the words on the page from the faith in which it was written. Mm -hmm. That's number one. The hermeneutic of continuity says, well, what was written was written and there's no reason that that, 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 that the faith of that or the meaning of that changes over time. So, for example, if it's said in the gospel or says in one of Paul's epistles something, it means today what it meant then. Right. And the fact that the, the interpretation is, is transmitted to us through sacred tradition over time, that, that when we read the scriptures, we read it with the guidance of, of the authoritative guidance of the church. And we don't simply just break with that to, to produce some new radical understanding. The, the church has read the Bible over more than 2000 years and has understood passages in a certain way. Um, and we don't uh, just because of our own preferences break with that. So let's give two examples of that, that we've mentioned this afternoon a couple of times in these uh, episodes about Pope Benedict uh, that are relevant here. And I'm going to mention abortion and homosexual activity, homosexual marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. So at the time that the Bible, and this is to illustrate the hermeneutic, particularly of hermeneutic of continuity. So we can go to outside of the Bible to a document called the Didache. Didache is Greek for teaching. Mm-hmm. It's called the teaching. And it was, a, it was not the Bible, but it was an extra biblical, biblical document. Basically, it was a set of instructions that was floating around the churches of Asia Minor. Mm-hmm. And it was probably written around the time of the later epistles. Right, sort of the second half of the first second century. Second half yeah. of the first century, depending on when you date some of those epistles and when you date for example, the, the revelation of John, it may have been written before the revelation of John so in the seventies yeah. and eighties. So it actually is contemporaneous with the Bible. It's an example of a Christian text that was not determined to be the canon of scripture, but was an authentic text of what Christians were being taught in churches at the time that the apostles were still running around and writing their letters. Right. 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 And in there, I remember were you part of the, cause I remember years ago we did a, we did a, like yes, a study yes. group on, on this. And one of the things it says real clearly in there is that abortion is, you know, a sin. It is a, an atrocity. It, it is unacceptable. Yeah. It, it highlights there's the way it uses the scriptural language of there's a way of life and there's a way of death. And right. it very clearly puts abortion on the side of the way of death. Because abortion was practiced in the ancient world, the different kind of methodologies, but they did have methods of abortion. It mm-hmm. was very common in the Greek and Roman world. And Christians at the time that the New Testament was written, the apostle and I were very clearly instructed that abortion was a sin. It was wrong. It was bad. It was the way of death, right? Yep. So when we now look at trying to understand pro-life, pro-choice, whatever issues, the abortion issue today, 
with the hermeneutic continuity, we would say, well, we're not going to read the Bible in a way different than the people who read the Bible who were who knew the apostles, mm-hmm. right? Some of the people who wrote the Didache were instructed by the apostles themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not saying the Didache is scripture, but it is contemporaneous with scripture, and it is a window into the to the mindset of the first Christians mm-hmm. at that first generation. And so why would we not understand scripture and moral theology in the same way that they did? Well, and it's not just going back to the first century. It's the fact that that understanding has right. continuously been the understanding of the church in all of the intervening centuries as well. So this is opposed to a what, what, what he sometimes, call, sometimes called a hermeneutic of rupture, mm-hmm. the notion that at some point along the way that stopped being true or a hermeneutic of progressivism. Sure. The we notion, know better. Yeah, we know better than they do. And and the Holy Spirit has led us to change, right? So the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, it was wrong then, or they thought it was wrong then, but the Holy Spirit has led us to this new springtime of freedom where we now understand it's okay to kill your unborn child, right? That would be one example. The other one would be a homosexual practice and marriage, mm-hmm. right? So when you look at, Today, the defense of that within the Christian church, right? You'll have, it's super easy to find in five seconds on the internet, pastors, theologians, Christians. I would say probably the dominant position in most Protestant seminaries today is that homosexual practices, homosexual acts, and homosexual marriage is acceptable and not just acceptable, but that it's, 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 uh, it's ground, they'll find ways to ground it in the New Testament. So sure. they'll take those passages in the New Testament that bear upon this and reinterpret them. Mm-hmm. So going back to what we were talking about a moment ago with the hermeneutic of continuity, go, well, hold on. If that's what Paul meant, then surely all of the churches that Paul worked with and instructed would have followed that practice, right? They would have understood Paul's writing in the way that you claim it is, but they didn't because we can simply go back and realize that no, the first century Christians and the second mm-hmm. century Christians that are, did not agree with homosexual practice and homosexual marriage. And they, in the face of the first generation, they actually knew Paul. So mm-hmm. when they got his letter, they didn't read it the way you're reading it. Mm-hmm. So for you to insert that interpretation is a rupture with the understanding of it that has been shared since the time it was written. Right. Yeah. And, and those two examples are, are certainly um, sort of the most uh, relevant or two of the most relevant ones in terms of um, the current, uh, you know, political and cultural debates going on right now. But this, this um, hermeneutic of rupture um, is applied in a lot of different ways in, in heterodox theology as I mean, as fundamental as the nature of Christ is Christ divine or not, or the nature of God um, with all kinds of, of different theologies that are in opposition to traditional received Christian theology. Well, the, the, so un, it, the uniqueness yeah. of Christ, mm-hmm. um, the, the saving quality of Christ. Can we be saved outside Christ, you know, right? So we can go through the whole New Testament, as you say, and have an understanding of these were the, the clear teachings of scripture at the time. And this is how they were clearly understood by uh, the generation of the apostles and the generation after that and the generation after that. And to have a notion now that all of that was wrong and then to sort of retroactively go back and sort of reinsert new meaning into those mm-hmm. documents is that sort of retroactive rupture. And what it does is it makes the text, it's what we were talking about in the last episode, the dictatorship of relativism. 
it's a, a decoupling of the scriptural text from the faith in which it was written and the community of faith in which it was uh, delivered. Right, right. Um, and and so uh, Benedict um, in his uh, exhortation Verbum Domini, which is about the word of God, uh, sums this up pretty well. Um, he says that authentic biblical hermeneutics can only be had within the faith of the church. Um, and then he says the primary setting for scriptural interpretation is the life of the church. And so he he is clearly saying the traditional, the, the longstanding understanding of the church is the way that we see scripture. We see it with the eyes of faith that the that the church leads us to look at it with. You know, I remember when I was in high school already, it began to be popular. And then when I was in college, I remember they would offer these classes, the Bible is literature. I don't know if that was something that they did when you were yeah, around, yeah. but I remember, and I wasn't a Christian at the time, but it was like, you could take this class called the Bible is literature, in which you were supposed to kind of read the Bible disconnected from the church, disconnected from faith, disconnected from historical continuity, just treat it as a book. And, you know, supposedly like, oh, this is really just a really great book to read, but really it becomes a deconstruction of the scriptures and it rips it out of its context, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, in, in, uh, Verbum Domini, but also in, uh, Pope Benedict's trilogy, Jesus of Nazareth, in which he writes these three volumes while he's Pope about, about Jesus and, and the life of Christ. He, he talks about that. He has this, what he calls sort of the two stages of an authentic um, reading of the scripture of exegesis, um, of interpreting the text, is that you, you start with reading the text and, and asking what it meant to what, what the original author was trying to convey. Um, and so that, in a sense, is the historical component of the exegesis. But then you need to move on to the second stage, which is asking about the truth of it. Is it true? How does it affect me? What, what's the, um, the implication of this? And that, of course, is guided by the faith of the church and the continuity of the tradition of the church. If you leave it at that first stage and you don't go further than that, then it's, it's focused on the past. You're reading a book about the past and it doesn't have bearing on yourself. And it's also very um, vulnerable in our current um, day and age to merely a secular reading of the text that, it, that it is divorced from faith, as you say. So like when I was in seminary, cause I went to a, right. A, a seminary because it was not a Catholic seminary because our, it was completely grounded in scripture, like scriptural reading and, and the reading, the original scriptures in their original language and the original context and unpacking and exegizing that was, that was all, all we were about, right? Mm-hmm. We weren't sacramental or whatever. So, you know, we had to have two years of Greek prior to arriving at seminary. We had to have three and four years of Greek and Hebrew. And it was all about this, what you call exegesis. And I want to say a little about that. That's extracting from the text, the meaning, right? right? right. And that's exactly how we were taught. That's why we had to read the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, we had to be able to demonstrate that we could read the original text in the original language and understand its original meaning. But then we would have, you know, in our classes for four years, then, then we would have to write these practice sermons. And it was interesting how you could just see over the time that we were in school, like how your practice sermons got better because what we would do is you'd say, okay, like I did this whole exposition on the Greek or the Hebrew words or whatever. And then I went to some commentaries and some dictionaries and Hebrew dictionaries or whatever the what case, right? Sure. And so the first the first sermons that you saw guys doing in their second and third year seminary 
were like book reports. Sure. Like, right. So I've assigned this passage and here's what this Greek word means. And here's what this grammar phrase means. And here's, and you kind of go, okay, yeah, you got all that, but so what? Who cares? Right. And what? our professors would say, okay, so so what? You gave me a book report on the third chapter of Romans or whatever. Right. What right. are the implications? Yeah. Why should I care? Now, now you have to apply that within the life of the church and you have to apply it to, you know, the faithful. And now, but here's the thing we're also taught is the danger of isogesis. Mm, mm. So exegesis is taking the meaning that's in the text and extracting it, bringing it out, right? Right. And that believes that the value the meaning, the value is resident within that right. text. There's, there's treasure in there that you're trying to mine out yeah. of it. We're trying to unpack it. Okay. Isogesis is the opposite. That is inserting the meaning into the text. So that is not unpacking the trunk. That's, that's packing Trying to it. shove something there's, into yeah, a shove full something. trunk. <laughs> right. So that's where you say, hey, like I've got this thing that I want to say, right? I've mm -hmm. got this agenda this belief, this agenda, this whatever, this political agenda, this theological agenda, this moral agenda. And now what I'm going to do is find a, a either find a text within the Bible, or I'm going to take the assigned, the text I'm assigned, and I'm going to, I'm going to jam that in there. I'm going to find some way to twist the words. I'm going to find some way to twist the interpretation so that I can shove my agenda into that and claim that's what it's talking about. Mm -hmm. And this just, I mean, I mean, I get, you know, pretty reactive about this because I've been doing this for 36 years, but it, 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 man, it just, just great grinds. I mean, grates on me, you know, uh, because when I hear some of these interpretations, I go, I was pounded into me when I was in my twenties, mm -hmm. never do that. Never take your agenda, even if it was a good agenda. Right. 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 Even if that, even if your intentions are great and you're a, you're a, you know, you have some kind of moral point that you want to make you're, I mean, if you're totally orthodox point, but don't shove your, uh, orthodox point into a, into a passage where it doesn't belong. Right. Right. And, and especially what, of course, what Benedict is reacting to is where you had secular or progressive or secular or extra biblical agendas, moral theology points, you know, philosophical points, political points, mm -hmm. and those are being jammed into the text. And that is a violation. Of, it's an isogetical thing, but it's also a violation of the hermeneutic of faith, of continuity, and everything. Right, else. right. It disrespects the scripture. Well, and it, and it disregards the divine authorship of the scripture. You're, you're, even if not consciously, you're, you're asserting a sort of human authorship there, a human authority over the text and its meaning. You know, we were, I remember a professor saying, This doesn't belong to you. This passage is not your passage. It's not your thing. And so you have to treat it as a gift, a gift from God by the Holy Spirit to his people. Mm -hmm. And your job is to faithfully discern what it was that God said and what he wants to say with that to the people today. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can't have this rupture or discontinuity um, or, or reading it outside the context of the faith in which it was written. Right, right. So Benedict, you know, as you mentioned, this Jesus of Nazareth uh, trilogy. Actually, I think there were four books that he did. He did a Jesus of Nazareth and then he did the three. Yeah, yeah I think there was a There four. are three in that series, but I mean, he wrote plenty of other things. Yeah, I think things. he won room. Yeah, yeah, anyway, but yeah, he wrote, I, I have a list here of at least 20 books that he wrote. Mm -hmm. But his contributions out, let's, let's kind of wrap up this, this episode and wrap up our conversation today by talking about where you kind of go forward with his legacy. So his legacy with biblical scholarship, Corey, what would be the things that you think we can learn from that in terms of the life of the church 
going forward in the 21st century and the lives of of individual Catholics and and Christians going forward. Yeah, I, my understanding of it is that Benedict um, was one of the main voices in his age, um, in in our age, um, calling the church back to faithfulness to the scriptures and to a faithful reading of the scriptures. Um, in continuity with with how they were written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and with how they've been received in unbroken tradition by the church. And um and of course the church in in general, um the bishops and and everyone needs to be called to that. But I think in in the individual Catholic's life, it's having a, a lively engagement with with the scriptures. So that starts, I think Benedict would be the first to argue that it starts with our liturgical um, engagement with the text. So the scripture readings at mass on Sunday and, and on feast days and other days, being able to listen with the ears of faith um, and informed by the tradition of the church and to, to hear and, um, and apply to our lives uh, the, the truths of scripture. It, I think his, uh, his work is an encouragement and an exhortation to priests and other people who preach the word um, to, to dutifully and faithfully unpack that for the faithful. And, and then also um, outside of mass, just in our, in our daily devotional lives, to have a, a lively and faithful engagement with the scripture, to be, to be reading them and to make them part of our, our, our mental and in spiritual lives and, and the makeup um, to, to be sort of drenched and, and saturated with them as Benedict was. Well said. And so I think we're going to wrap up our uh, conversation here about the legacy, the intellectual legacy, the legacy of faith really mm-hmm. of Pope Benedict Sixteenth, And uh, may he, uh, uh, we, we pray for him and we ask him to pray for us. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.